Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth here. It is time to focus on metal. All right, Metalhead, Scott here. And Richie. Welcoming you to yet another edition of Focus on Metal. Not only that, but another episode in our Little Mountain Sound series. Yeah, a long one. It is a long one. It was. It started off as being a going to be a short one. Well, and you threw me a curveball at the I last did. minute, which um, is great. Well, you sent me a text saying we had uh, the first guy up was uh, Roger Monk. We, hmm. we we thirty five minutes with him, and I think we recorded that what, four four months ago, maybe. It's been a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's been a bit because. It's a long, it's a long series, so we've been, we've been banking them all along. But, and then I figured, okay, maybe there's someone else I can get, mm. um, because Mike Fraser sent me a list of names, and um, I hit up uh, Mike Plotnikoff, um, who worked very extensively with Bruce Fairburn. Yeah, and uh, we got some great insight into Bruce's production methods. Yeah, best uh, stuff we've got about Bruce so I, far. I, yeah, I believe so, and. Uh, he started working with him, I think, around the, uh, 91, the Razor's Edge and then the live record. And mm. he worked all the way up to his death. Yeah. He worked on the Yes album that, he, that I think Bruce was working on when he passed away. Yeah. So you're looking at 10 years. He probably worked on every record with him. So, yeah. you know, um, so we get some insight into Mike's in at Little Mountain. And it's a lot like some of the other people's ins. They go in and they sweep the floor. Or, yeah. You know, Michael explained it himself. And I was thinking, you know, when he was talking and he talks in the beginning of his interview and all I could think about was Nick Raskolinitz. Yes. You know, it, yep. it's like that's what's my vision. City. The exactly. same thing, you know. Exactly. And Nick would, it was whatever it takes. You need me to clean ashtrays. You need me to go to sand, get a sandwich, whatever. I'll push do this it. button. Oh, you're yeah. good at pushing this button. Hold this button and push this yeah. one. Oh, you can do that. Right. Sit down there, son. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, 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 I think he's got a cool story. What's really neat about this one too is that in a way it fits together because we've got a lot of insight on Bruce and and you know Mike is is very clear about how important Bruce was to this whole story yes and you know there's a lot of people have heard of Bruce and then there's a lot of people who haven't heard of Bruce so and then but the other thing is that that the first guy up we have Roger Monk Mm -hmm. he's also one of this like a germination point well he got Bob Rock in because they Mike. were can they were taking recording classes yes. with him and stuff. So so in a way these these kind of these two tie together nicely. Mm. Um, so it, it just I seem seems to work out that way, which was good. So it's it's an I think it's a nice good show. It's a long show this week, uh, but it's definitely uh, I think we got a, a lot of information on this from two different people in in at two different levels of involvement in there and uh, but a lot of I think a lot of good stuff. Yeah, very much so. I think when you look Roger, when you look at Roger's career there, he came in around 75, 76 mm. and then he got Bob Rock in and we you know, we talked to Roger a lot about Bob mm. and we talked to Mike a lot about Bruce. Right. And Bob and Bruce are the two biggest producer names out of the studio. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of insight into both those guys, what makes them great. Right. Um I think with Roger when when you look at Roger's career, I think a lot of his career is more towards the orchestral. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he even he says that that's what he's that um, was his thing to do. Yeah, because he they were up for a Grammy or they either up for a Grammy or they won a Grammy for um, 
Platoon soundtrack mm-hmm. and we talked to him a little bit about that yeah. with Oliver Stone and stuff like that so you know you, you've all the guys that ended up in the rock end like the likes of Bob and Mike and, and, and Bruce mm-hmm. and, but you've all the other guys there that did, did the jingles and they did, did like Roger I think helped out in the Motley Crue record so but right. he wasn't one of the big names on it Right. you just have all these guys they have their hands you know in so many you know pies mm. and um you know, all integral to the to, the, to the to the success of the studio, yeah. and they all have their stories to tell, and that's why we got so many of them on because you, you could have got two guys on. I could, you know, you could have gone right. We're just going to get Bob Rock on and Mike Fraser. They're the two people that you know that are that are the best known. Yeah, but you 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 wouldn't get the whole story. No. So we we try to get as many on as we could. Yeah. And yeah. This yeah. is a long one, and um, but there's some great stories. Absolutely, in it. yeah. It's uh, like we just got off the phone with Mike, yeah, and uh, he was tremendous to talk to. Again, I had no idea who this guy was; never spoke to him before. Yeah, but all these behind the scenes guys they have some fantastic stories. That's right, yeah. And uh, they worked on some massive records. Yeah, yeah. And they're just saying, "Oh yeah, Stephen Tyler here, and Joe Perry here, and ah, John Bon Jovi, hi John, and all that." And I'm like. Holy shit! You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like normal to them, yeah. you know, and uh, it's just amazing stuff. Yep, yep. All right. So, what's uh, since it's going to be a long one, let's dive right in yep. and uh, you know uh, start off with Roger, who was one of the first guys we actually talked to as well. It was, yeah. Um, but we're trying to do this in some semblance of an order, and and as far as the behind the scenes, Roger was like the next right person. After to have balls. up, yeah, um, and then you know you got Mike, and it just seemed to they seemed to fit together. So we we're gonna go with with that as well. But then of course the next one out we'll have will be another one of the artist ones. So mm-hmm. uh, so with that, why don't we uh, why don't we roll uh, our talk with Roger Monk? All right, guys, I, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one, roll.
we, we just wasted two good tracks. This last one was even better than the first. It doesn't work for me. I gotta have more cowbell. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> So, as part of our Little Mountain Sound project, uh, we have got engineer Roger Monk on the on the line, who was who was in Little Mountain Sound for uh, seventeen years. Am I correct? Yeah, it's about that about that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So you were there basically at at the, at the very beginning. Yeah, I was one of the first people hired uh, at the big change. Um, th there was a big switch in nineteen seventy six, uh, and I was working for another studio here in Vancouver. And Jeff Turner uh, was the, the man who built Little Mountain and was running it. And he ended up buying the facility that I was working in. And I literally went to work for Little, Little Mountain. So we switched places almost over a weekend. Okay. And I was one of the first people hired by Bob Brooks in 1976. Yeah, so who else was there at the, at the time? Uh, other engineers, producers? At the time, boy, uh, going on my memory, there was a, there was a, a guy named... Dave Slagter, mm -hmm. who'd been recording uh, Slag Valdi and the hometown band, Sherry Aldrich, uh, some of the folky people in town of that, that particular era. There was also a young man named Daryl Strathachuk, who was recording a lot of the jingles for Griffiths, Gibson, Ramsey. And uh, Bob Brooks was, was hired to manage the facility, and he ended up hiring me. So I was one of the, the first that he brought over. Okay. So when we had Miles on, he told us that when they built the studio at the time, they got uh, the modern state-of-the-art equipment. Uh, is, is that your recollection of it as well? That the equipment was top-notch. It was. It was. It was pretty good equipment. I had come from a facility in Toronto named Eastern Sound, mm -hmm. and they were the first twenty-four-track facility in Canada. Uh, at that point, it was uh, API consoles and uh, Antex. MM1000, I think, a multi-track machine. Little Mountain had uh, really good desks. They had the uh, Rupert Neve desks, but the tech machines were a little bit funky. They, I won't name the, the manufacturer, but they were a little under the, under the weather and gave us some grief. And after a year or so, we replaced those with studios. So were you, were you hired as an engineer for a particular area in the studio, for a particular like, type of music, or were you just hired as, a, as an engineer overall? I was hired as an engineer overall. I was 26 at the time, uh, but I was also specializing. I'd done a lot of recording of big bands and orchestral stuff, as well as the rock and roll. So uh, I was basically brought in to, to 
record a lot of stuff with Griffiths Gibson, with Mars Ramsey and his company. We were doing a lot of jingles at that time, as well as as, as rock music. And, uh, and so I was tending to do more of the, the orchestral stuff. And uh, one of the first people I brought over with me was Bob Rock and Ron Vermeulen. Mm. Both those folks were my students. I was teaching for the Recording Institute of America, and we had two classes in the week, uh, one on Thursday nights and one on Saturday nights. Ron came to the Thursday night sessions, and I was uh, and, and Bob Rock on the Saturdays. Those were the two key people in, 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 in the courses, and uh, they were the first two people we brought over to Lowell Mountain with us. So wow. Bob Rock was one of the first, Ron Vermeulen, and... Almost the other person that was hired right away was a man named John Vitasic. Okay. Who I'm sure whose name has come up. It has. Unfortunately, we lost John a couple of years ago, but he was uh, a real technical whiz, mm -hmm. and uh, Bob Brooks hired him, brought him in, and uh, we made a lot of acoustic changes to the studio, and um, he, was, he was the, the technical engineer with Ron for many years. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's amazing for, you know, for you to be able to, to look back at some of those guys and be like, yep, those are my students. I mean, that's, that's, that's a hell of a thing to, to be able to have on your resume. Well, it was, I mean, it was a thrill, uh, you know, when I was approached about doing this, I thought, well, you know, that was our youth and that was the exciting time of our lives. You know, this was from the middle seventies through to the end of the nineties, I guess. Mm. Uh, and it was just an exciting era. Uh, the studio was doing very well. Some big acts went through there. One of the unique things about Little Mountain Sound was it mixed rock and roll with more of the traditional classical uh, commercial areas of, of recording. Mm. So we had a lot of suits there as well as tattoos. <laughs> and it was kind of a unique, unique, unique facility. Most, most studios specialize in one area or the other. Yeah, but being a, being a relatively small town here, we had to do both kinds of recording, and it, it they they seem to survive side by side quite well. Yeah, yeah. did did you find that um, over the years a lot of the like the rock musicians would probably want to see how how you recorded the orchestral side and all that they were, that they were curious? Was there much mingling between them? Oh, they did indeed, because musicians are musicians, and I remember one of the one of the last sessions I did at Little Mountain with Bob Rock was uh, an orchestral overdub on, I'm just trying to think who the band was. I think it was, I think it was Metallica. Uh, I, I could be wrong on that. I mean, we may have to clarify that. But we had uh, probably a 40, 50 piece orchestra in the studio. And I remember the band coming in and uh, nine o'clock in the morning. And of course they used to show up at noon. <laughs> not not usually getting in as early, but I think we started at nine in the morning and we set the the orchestra up, and they came in and of course they were absolutely fascinated because it was musician against musician, mm. and they were just fascinated that these these folks would come in, they'd have sheet music put in front of them, and they'd play, so they were hearing their music being played, uh, and it was it blew them away. They were just really really impressed. So. Yeah. Now when when we talked to Miles, you know, and, and he was describing you know the studio and the overall feeling of it. Um, you know, I, I got a sense that that the way that studio was set up and the way that it was evolving and all of that really was conducive to actually creating good engineers. You guys were, you know, you were able to to show people how to creatively do things with like a limited tool set on hand, but being able to make the best use of the space and ambience and all that. Is that your recollection as well? Yeah, I, I think it was. I mean, Little Mountain had been 
you know, for its era, for the mid-70s when it was designed. I mean, well, let's face it, there were some amazing studios around the world, particularly in Los Angeles, some in Montreal all the time. Um, for, for its time, it was very, very well put together, well thought out. Mm. And, um, you know, thinking back at the old analog days of what we had to do, uh, but we made things work and we, we made it happen and it became a very successful facility. Yeah, you know, because, you know, a lot of times you you, you see interviews with, with Bob and he's talking about, you know, what he does and how he does it. And all the time that he ever, you know, I'm listening to him, I just think back to, you know, all the older kind of, um, you know, the, all the kind of tape techniques and all that before you had all kinds of processors available. And and you really had to think through it and be creative about that. And, and that, that always seems to come through when you when you talk to, to Bob. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, it, was a, it was a different era, of course, when everything was in external boxes. And, mm. and, uh, but it was all we knew at the time. I mean, thinking back is a different thing, but, and, and, but and you can't always think forward. But what we had at the time was... was was state-of-the-art, I guess. And uh, we had some pretty good equipment there, and there were some big acts going through, and we you know, we, we made things happen. Mm. I wouldn't want to go back and record that way necessarily, but as Bob and I have always said, don't throw everything out. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of the techniques we used, a lot of the uh, microphones and outboard gear that we used then, we still use today. Yeah. And I do in my techniques because... I, I, I wouldn't want to record on tape anymore, don't get me wrong, but you don't throw everything out. Mm. We, there's still a lot of things that were done at that time, and certainly it's the magic behind what Bob does. I mean, he's a brilliant producer, he's a brilliant engineer, and he still uses techniques that, that we, were, we did in the 1980s. Yeah, and you know, and I know that you know, people always, and I, I myself am included in those people, that glamorize things like the Neve consoles and all that. But there's a lot of those other things, too, that people probably don't realize that were out there, like some of the, you know, the external Pultec stuff. I mean, that's just amazing gear that I don't think you could ever duplicate anywhere. But it was, I think it was such a big part of a lot of the sound of, of things that were done back in the 70s. It certainly was, and we still use them today. Yeah. I mean, uh, we I, we don't mix in the box here. I never have done, we never will do. We still use, we still bring everything back up through a, uh, a console and, and mix traditionally. And I know Mike Fraser does the same thing. Yeah. We do not mix in the box because it's not the same. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it, it 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 works, and you can you can get things done absolutely. But a lot of those big big fat sounds that phrase gets and, and, and rock. I mean, that all comes from the techniques that they've been using for years, and you can't do that in the box. That's right. Yeah. Now, did you know when when you brought Bob Rock in as an engineer that he'd eventually end up in the production side of it as well? Uh, probably not. But I knew that he and Ron Vermeulen were were good people and key people, and uh, they were intelligent and keen. I mean, we used to work ridiculous hours at the time. Uh, when studios were being modified, we'd all pitch in and help out. And, and, and But we, we worked together well as a team. And um, I remember Bob Rock. I mean, I've, got, I've got to tell you this little story. Um, Bob basically got his start with the record Armageddon, which was uh, a, uh, a local band. Mm -hmm. And they'd been recording at Mushroom Studios, I believe. And... Um, they they hired us to record the horns and the strings, and we recorded it. And, and I wasn't feeling too well. I'd been working a lot of hours that time. And in that era, we used to have to do mono mixes to send to the record company. And uh, Bob was my assistant, and he'd help me with this with the orchestral overdubs. And I said to Bruce Fairburn, "Do you mind if Bob mixes the 
and one of the mixes for you, I go to get home. And he said, no, of course not. And that was basically the beginning of their careers uh, for both Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock. They started working together on that album and they, they, both their careers took off. Yeah. Bruce Fairburn, of course, like, you know, passed away a number of years ago. Um, yeah. What made him a, a great producer? Because he ended up producing probably the biggest albums that came out of Little Mountain Sound, the biggest rock albums anyway. Yes, he did. Uh, I mean, I, you, you could certainly look up the credits you're know, going on my memory here, but he worked with some big acts, uh, as, as did Bob Rock. Mm-hmm. I think he was just a good overall producer. I mean, he had, he had the ears and he had the ideas and he got the right people around him. I mean, um, I've always thought that production is a good meld of a producer and an engineer and the artist. I mean, you all work together as a team. The roles really aren't black and white, I don't think. Yeah, uh, and uh, so if, if the chemistry's right and the ideas flow, this makes a good team. It's, it's the same as Bob Rock today with with some of the acts he works with, Michael Bublé. I mean, I know that they respect each other and they like each other, uh, and it's uh, that, that that's the that, that's the key. That's the chemistry. Yeah. Now, can you remember? Was there a specific album for you where that made you look up and say? Hang on a second, there's something special going on with the studio here. Boy, uh, specifically, no, I, 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 but I think the air was probably the beginning of the 80s. Um, Bob was doing his own album at that time. Um, in fact, I think the picture I sent you was that, that air, I think it was 1983. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of myself with Bob Rock and Mick Ronson. Correct. And that was the, the album that, that they did. That was No Stranger to Danger. And I think at that time we, there was just a overall excitement because there was a there was a lot of things going on, a lot, a lot of things happening. You know, Vancouver was becoming a place on the map for some of these international bands to come and record in. Yeah, it's just that one of the reasons I I wanted to do this was like I was growing up in Ireland, and and for me like it was L.A. You know, if American bands were all in L.A. and all of a sudden they all started going up to Vancouver to record, and I've often thought like why why are they going up there? You know that, that that's one one probably one of the main reasons I'm doing this. I was just curious that, you know, and then of course you find out that of course you had all these guys like yourself and Bruce and Bob and Mike all came from that studio, which like which is incredible. Exactly, and and I remember around that time Bob Clearmountain came and did some recording there. Uh, I don't remember the names of the projects he worked on, but he was out there a couple. Of, I think it was Brian Adams, maybe. Yeah, he did Reckless there. Yeah, he did some of Reckless. Uh, yeah. And and and. You know, seeing, well, working with Bob, I mean, he came in and, and uh, he had obviously the tools that he needed and he, he used some of his ideas and it opened our, ide- our eyes a little bit with, with some different techniques. So it was an exciting time generally and there, there were some good sounds coming out of it. That was, the needs would have gone by that time and we were recording through Solid State Logics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, as, you know, as you went through the 80s and stuff did, was there a lot of pressure to to change gear to upgrade gear and, and modify things not overly because i don't think that the the changes in technology were growing as much as they are and as fast as they are these days mm. uh but the desks did get upgraded from from neves to ssls because we needed the channels and ssl at first time i mean um allowed you to do so many things uh, in a relatively small footprint Right. The demands, I guess, because of the international nature of the, of the band. I remember we used to joke up with Bob Rock because the patch bay, boy, I probably got 250 patch points. Uh, when, when Bob was mixing, there'd be equipment piled almost to the ceiling, and every patch hole was filled with stuff. 
it was it's quite an interesting time. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I think back in you know in in the uh, probably mid '80s, and and I was I was working in radio, and I can remember switching the studio at that point over from you know the old radio consoles with the dials, you know, up to the, the modern boards with the faders and all that, and just I mean just the amount of work people don't realize. They, you know, nowadays people think, oh, you just get that stuff, you plug it in, you're all done. But the, I mean, just the sheer amount of wiring and hookups and everything else that's needed to do just to change something like that at that point in time was just amazing. Well, that's where John Vitasic, of course, came to the front, and, and and his team and Ron, and there were a few other technical people that worked over the over the years. But of course, a lot of that is a lot easier these days because you use light pipes mm. and you use fiber and you use MADI connections. There's all sorts of Abilities now that you can run single, two or three cables, and you've got all all this bandwidth. Yeah, exactly. In those days, we had to run mic cable and, and, and Neumann cable and XLRs and all that wiring, and had to check phase and everything. So yes, it was a, it was a it was a much bigger task in some ways than it is today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Roger, I just want to ask you about uh, a couple of the, the albums you worked on. The first one I want to ask you about is uh, your memories of doing the Platoon soundtrack. Yes, absolutely. Um, we were approached in the early 80s by uh, a gentleman in Los Angeles, a man named David Franco, who was a music supervisor, to see if we could record for a motion picture. And this was the early days of locking multi-track machines and videotape decks. Uh, these days, of course, it's all run on computers with quick times, and it's a lot simpler. But I used to joke that it's like synchronizing a, a food mixer with a, with, with, with a cement mixer, <laughs> uh, because the two technologies are never designed to work together, but Sinti time codes uh, and, and interlocking these machines together. And it was a bit of an issue, and it was it was, it was tough to do, and, and it, was, it was the early days, and it was hard. But... We uh, said, yes, we could do that, and I think we were one of the first facilities in North America to actually use three-quarter-inch tape as a video format mm. and lock it to uh, a studio tape machine. Uh, that was about 83, 84. It was, a, it was a motion picture called Visiting Hours, and we did several pictures along the way, and Platoon came along in 1985, and it was the second project we'd done with uh, Oliver Stone, the first one was Salvador, which I think was in 1984. Um, so, but Platoon, obviously, when it came in, we didn't realize it was going to be the success it was, but it was a real uh, privilege to work on. Yeah, and there was, Oliver, was Oliver there when you were actually doing the score? Yes, Oliver Stone came up. And I can't remember his music, music uh, supervisor's name, but he was an American. The composer was George Delarue, and all those folks spoke fluent French and although we're living in a bilingual country out here uh, my crew didn't speak any French but uh, the Americans and George Delarue were chatting away in French <laughs> so so would most of your work around that time have been uh, movie scores orchestral kind of stuff yeah that was basically my specialty because don't forget by then I was in my middle 30s and I, we had Bob Rock and we had um, Dave Slagter was still doing some rock and roll at the time uh, Mike Fraser was was in his starting to get his independence, uh, so they were doing the rock stuff, and uh, well, I was doing more of the traditional, the big bands, the bagpipe albums. I've done some of those uh, orchestral things, uh, and I, I still do that today. Yeah, did you ever want to like dabble a bit more into rock stuff, or were you were you happy doing the, the stuff you? Were I was doing? I was happy doing to do the traditional stuff. To be perfectly honest, that was more my 
my ballywhack. Uh, I've certainly done some orchestral overdubs on rock and roll, and I like doing that. But uh, I like working with the organic instruments and the organic players. Yeah, I see. I, I see. And you, uh, you, you worked on the David Lee Roth album. Is that true? That's true. Yeah. yeah. Did Did you work on that with with the, all the musicians, or with just one of them, or? Um. No, I I was I participated. Obviously, Bob Rock was uh, was engineering that, and uh, I I can't remember exactly what my involvement would have been, but uh, I had a hand in many many of those projects. Yeah, and the other one is the the Motley Crue one in '94. I see you've worked a little bit on that too. Motley Crue, Aerosmith, ACDC, um, White Snake. Boy, I've heard of all of those. <laughs> I should have written all these down knowing this was happening, but nah. uh, many, many projects. Yeah, so would you have worked on them for long? Do you remember? Would, would you have been in like for weeks on end? Or would you have been, were you the type of guy that could do a couple of projects at the same time? Or Yes, uh, that, that was my, more my thing. You know, Bob uh, and Fraze were doing the, the long hours and, um, and you know, spending the weeks and months with these guys. I was brought in to do various different aspects of it. Okay, so I can imagine that Part of the thing that you probably like about working with the organic instruments is that challenge, right, of of every instrument kind of has its own unique way that it needs to be miked and presented and, and knowing how to control bleed against things and all of that. That's correct. And, and, and using leakage to your advantage. Um, you know, my thing has always been we all know what an orchestra sounds like and we know what the flute sounds like. With rock and roll music, it's it's it's... It, 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 it comes down to groove and feel, and because it's electronic, uh, it, it can be made to sound and blend together in a unique way. It's a different kind of recording. It's a different kind of creativity. Mm. When, I, when, I, when I record an orchestra, the thing is to, is to make it sound the way it is. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think it's also kind of a, a unique thing that I think a lot of people, that, you know, musicians that are in, you know, are in orchestras, they, they have kind of, I think, a better sense of where their instrument actually belongs and how it sits and relates, where I know that, that usually, you know, most of us guitar players and stuff, we think, well, we're, we're only concerned with how our sound is and not so much with the whole entire thing. Is that kind of your take as well? Yeah, I, I think that's probably very true. I mean, we've all sat in mixes where everybody's got their own feeling about uh, how the mix is. The bass player wants to hear this a certain way and the drummer says, yeah, well, I'm not quite hearing that section. Mm. Um, and that's where the producer, of course, takes, takes a role and ropes everybody in together and comes up with the, with, with the thing. But with, with, with the orchestra, yeah, we want it to sound balanced and, 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 and pleasant and, and big and powerful if it needs to be or emotional. I mean, music is such an emotional thing. Yeah, and I think that's what those guys understand is that you know, even if they had that minimum role in it, that that's actually just a contribution to that overall feel and stuff. And, you know, there's not really that, you know, solo in, a, in an orchestra piece. It's it's all together and stuff that makes it sound so massive, just all these little parts adding up. Exactly. And the, the bigger, the, you always get a bigger sound when you record it all at the same time, mm, as yeah. opposed to overdubbing and, 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 and building sections. Yeah. It's really nice to record it all at the same time and it may not always be 100% perfect, but it sounds real and it sounds organic and it sounds big. Yeah. Now, when you were doing any of that orchestral stuff up there, did you ever uh, use the, the backloading bay as a, a reverb facility for yourself? Not for the orchestral stuff. That was used basically for, for, for when they recorded drums. Yeah. They used to prop the doors open and, 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 and mic, that, uh, mic that room as well. Mm. 
Uh, Little Mountain wasn't a particularly live room in itself, uh, or, 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 or as big as you know, I like to use these days. But uh, it, it had a good sound, and we were able to to achieve. One of the biggest projects that was actually ever done there was a Livy Newton John. I know if you got that on our list, and that was done in the late seventies, I believe. We did a recording uh, of "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina," mm-hmm. and I think there were some immigration issues, and she wanted to record that that recording, and but there were some issues about getting her into the states because, of course, she, she was an Australian. And we got a phone call out of the blue. Is the studio available to, to do a big orchestral recording? It was, and this all came together in a in a case of in a space of a week, I think it was. Wow. And Armin Steiner came up to to sit behind the desk, and we had 98 musicians in Studio A at Little Martin. Wow. It was extremely full. Everybody was a little uncomfortable, but because it was all squeezed in there, but uh, we made it work. Everybody, of course, was excited to be recording with Olivia, and she actually sang along with every take. Uh, we had her in a, in a separate booth, so she wasn't leading into anything. And I think we recorded it probably four or five times. She sang along every time, and everybody was so thrilled because we had a big star like that in the building. Yeah, I'm thinking 78. I think Greece was probably around 77, maybe the year before, so she would have yeah, been... Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly when it was done, but it was the late 70s for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things Miles told us about, um, around, especially around the time Bon Jovi and all the all the big acts started coming up there, he said the groupies were a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's part of the business, isn't it? Yeah, he said that they were trying to get in windows and doors and stealing stuff off the cars and everything. Do you have any memories of that at all? Oh yeah, I mean that that, that was, and it still is an issue today. I mean, in in the business I'm in, we we got a lot of a lot of people uh, standing outside looking for people coming and going from the building. I don't think anybody was really out out of out of line, but. Uh, Little Mountain was well known, and they knew that ACDC were recording there, and they used to hang around outside and see them coming and going. And the bands are usually pretty good going. They'll, they'll obviously spend some time with the fans, but I don't remember any real problems with it, no. Yeah, it'd be a big problem now, I think, with social media and everything the way it is. <laughs> I think back then it was probably more manageable. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when you look back now today, I mean, do you, do you have like one, like, big favorite thing that that you look back and go yeah that was just my ultimate like best like most blast time there whether it was a a recording or an upgrade project or a new piece of gear or anything that you look back and it's like the kind of the big deal for you i don't think anything particularly stands out it was it was a transition you know we were there for 17 years as you've said and there was a lot of technical changes there were a lot of advances a lot of improvements a lot of big acts came through um, a lot of good motion pictures went through there, and I think my, my memories are very fond. And uh, it's 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 sad that it doesn't exist anymore. I think it was it was the height of our our lives, and and it was the the important times of our lives. And I look back with, with fond memories, but I don't think anything specific yeah. uh, sticks out. Yeah. Now, Ro- Roger, when, when it closed, um, could you see the writing on the wall? Yes. Yes. It, I, I could. It was a slow demise. Basically, Bob uh, sold the studio. And I don't really know business-wise what happened, but a number of people were involved and wanted to take it over. And uh, my my partner, Dick Abbott, and I were actually asked to leave uh, because they were they were going to specialize in rock and roll. They didn't want 
any of the, the business that we were doing to carry on anymore, and we were asked to leave. So that's, that was when I moved across the street and opened my own facility. Okay. And you've been, yeah. there, you've been there since? And I've been been on my own ever since. And, yeah, we could see the writing on the wall. It was, it was, it was a shame, and, but it happened. Yeah, do you want to just tell us what you're actually doing now? What the name of the, the name of the business you you have? Yeah, my studio is called Dick and Rogers Sound Studio. Uh, Dick Abbott was uh, one of the production engineers at Little Mountain, and he and I we moved across the road and we specialised in doing commercial work, uh, recording voices for for cartoons, uh, building sound effects for cartoons and mixing them, and providing you know uh, orchestral recording services as needed. Yes. Yeah, do you keep in touch with any of the guys that used to work in Little Mountain? Oh yeah, I still see Fraze once in a while. In fact, we we get together for a beer sometimes when he's in town, and uh, I see Bob once in a while. We we got to work together on the Buble album fairly recently, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we, we 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 stay in touch. I, unfortunately, John's not with us anymore, but uh, Ron moved to Winnipeg, and I haven't seen or heard from him for a while. But, but I'm sure we'd stay in touch. Okay. Uh, I'm sure if he's in, yeah, if he's in Winterpeg, you just you need to wait for him to defrost. I think. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the show's founders, he actually lives in in Winnipeg, and of course he calls it Winterpeg. And um, yeah. he talks about the weather there, and I just I just can't figure out why anybody would actually want to live in Winnipeg with with that kind of insane weather. But then again, people say that about us in New England too. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's interesting, you know, when you talk about you know looking back and that kind of you know that feeling of kind of like some of the best years and all that and it really echoes back when you you know you, you watch the, the documentary that uh, dave grohl did about sound city and a lot of those folks it's really that same sentiment as well it's 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 kind of raises the hair in my arms when when you're saying about the same thing about your experiences there no you're exactly right i mean i saw that documentary about sound city and i guess it was about the same timeline and the same time frame and I think that same energy and philosophy that was going on there was going on at Little Mountain too. Mm, yeah, and and I think you know that was one of the things when you know when Richie came and he had this idea for doing this one that one of the reasons I was really thinking, wow, this is great, is just because you know I had so many people after they watched that documentary that Dave did that would come up to me and go, wow, now I kind of know what you talk about sometimes when you talk about being in the studio and how you know how it is recording a tape and how when you're doing digital stuff now you approach it like tape and people had a like have a new appreciation for it yeah uh, I, I, absolutely so and you know so I, as i said just now i don't want to go back to using tape necessarily but i don't throw away all, all the old techniques that we used to use hmm. because they still are valid and they still work and yeah still, there was a reason for it and then and it's still there the sad thing for me is that you know seeing what's happened to the music business and how difficult it is to to work in this medium mm. uh, for, for a young person to come up and, and make a career because you know there just isn't the cash flow they used to be people don't buy records like they used to and that's why we've had the demise of studios like Sound City I mean it's it's, it's pretty sad mm. I don't yeah. know what's going to happen in the future when you with big, with big bands where they're going to record I guess some new ones are going to come along I I presume because there aren't that many left. No, yeah. there's not. There's definitely not. But yeah, I'm I'm sure that one thing you don't miss is cutting and splicing tape. No, not at all. <laughs> I'd like a dollar for every every edit I've made. I'd be a very rich guy. Yeah, I, every time I had to cut tape, it was just 
it was almost like you know you could have just stuck needles in me i i i don't miss that so that's the one thing if anything else i gripe about some of the digital i just think i don't have to cut tape this is so much easier to just cut so well it, well, it is but you see that was all we knew hmm. you know they weren't the computers and the and, and the files to to, to to cut digitally yeah if you wanted to make edits, it had to be physically done with, with a razor blade and, and sticky tape. And when you think back, or I think back now, I think, well, how primitive that was, or yeah. is, but uh, it was all we had. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's some bands now that have actually gone back to it recording on tape. That it's getting, it's actually getting easier to find. I could think a couple of years ago you couldn't get it anywhere. Is it, I, I, I haven't even looked for it. I, I know Bob Rock was... was, was at some point was was actually recording on tape and then he transferred to pro tools hmm. afterwards but uh, initially it went through the tape process yeah I, I know a lot of it is just that there's not many manufacturers anymore that are even just bothering to, to actually make tape so that's the that's the hard part is finding new stock and to keep the machines going you know because power supplies are, are, are burning out hmm. and it's it's hard to get heads and that kind of thing absolutely hmm. yeah so anyway Roger this is a this has been an absolute blast. You know, it's been a lot of fun. Good. Well, I, I appreciate you inviting me to participate. It was a privilege to do so. And I hope you put on a good show. And I'd oh. sure like to hear, hear this when you put it together. Oh, no, we'll, we'll send we'll send the links to everybody. So do, do you have a website or something if, if people want to want to hit you up? Uh, yeah, the website is uh, dickandrogers.com. D-I-C-K-A-N-D-R-O-G-E-R-S.com. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah, we actually we really appreciate that, and it's it's great to actually uh, talk to a gear guy as well, and um, someone who knows a heck of a lot more about it than me. And you always, every time I talk to a gear guy, especially someone who's been doing it for a long time, you always learn something new. So it's been great to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. Terrific. Thank you, and good luck with it. All, All right, right. Thank you. Yeah, All right. Okay, that's All right. So there you go. Great talk with Roger, and you know he's he's a pretty good guy to talk to. He he really knows where you know what he liked to do there and stuff and uh i i just thought he was you know just really good a good guy to start off when we started this project he gave us a good sense of things and gave us a lot of ideas about asking other people certain things so mm -hmm. i think he was pretty good for that but as richie said we got a lot packed into this week so uh why don't we go and dive right into our talk with uh with mike plotnikoff the question i wanted to know was how a studio in vancouver became so big when everything was based in Los Angeles? I really think it, it was. It had a lot to do with Bruce Fairbairn and Bob Rock. They were really the main guys because they were just such great producers and the bands were willing to go up there to work with them. And they just made such great records and that happened to be the studio that they worked at. So everybody went for went for those two guys and then guys like Mike Fraser and myself and everybody else really benefited from the really from those guys. Mm. Yeah, so so when and when and how did you end up at, at Little Mountain? Well, I finished high school and I wanted to work in a studio, so I I grew up in a town, you know, a small town outside of Vancouver like actually quite far 5 hours east and I just really wanted to work in a studio, so I moved to Vancouver and basically went there every other day and begged them to hire me even to like clean bathrooms or empty ashtrays to do whatever, you know, just to get me in. And actually it was Ron Vermeulen and John Vertastic who basically took me under their wing and said, let this guy answer phones in the evenings, you know, from four o'clock on because there's nobody at reception. 
So basically, I started answering phones there and then just would spend, you know, come in early and like when everybody would leave, go in and learn everything in the studio. And then I just got a break one time when Bob Rock was doing a share record and it was over the Christmas holidays. And I was the only one willing to not take a Christmas holiday. And so Bob kind of looked at me and goes, okay, you're in. And I did a rec- three songs with him and Mike Fraser and that. And then that was basically the start of it all. Yeah. And did they have you do jing- did they have you do jingles as well or, or did you did you I, most- I never I never did the jingles ever. I think I worked might have worked with Roger Monk on one jingle one time. But no, I basically worked in the studio mostly with Bruce Fairburn. So I started as an assistant working like assisting for Mike Fraser and, and uh another engineer named Ken Lomas there and halfway through at the end of the Aerosmith record, Get a Grip, I basically, Bruce, whatever happened, I ended up being the, finishing the Aerosmith record, and that was the beginning of my career. So, yeah, so you have that real, that classic, you know, just doing anything and moving up. You see a lot of people that are very successful from coming into it from that frame of mind, because it seems to be like, you guys are the, are the the real big fans and always have the great ears and stuff, as opposed to just feeling like you have some kind of privilege of being there. Yeah, and I, yeah, I just worked really hard. Like I would, I would spend basically seven days a week in the studio, and uh, and you know, I just learned everything, and I was just always, you know, really interested in watch what Bob was doing, watch what Randy Staub, what Mike Fraser, mm-hmm. what all those guys were doing, and I would. Then bring in a you know when nobody was there I bring in a like a, a ghetto blaster and just put it into the into the into the room and and just mic it in different places and run it through different pieces of gear and learn what everything sounded like and then when I got my opportunity I was able to I was able to do it yeah that, that's something that's really interesting too because a lot of people that start recording today I mean they forget how much studio time costs and for you to have the opportunity to be able to do that and and learn a room as opposed to, you know, now a lot of times you can sit at home and screw around. But I mean, back then we couldn't do that. If you wanted to do it, you were usually paying a lot of money for the, you know, the ability to learn that kind of thing. Exactly. And I, and I got to, you know, watch great records being made and, and starting as an assistant there, there besides working with uh, mostly Bruce, you know, uh, and, and Mike Fraser and, you know, a few records with Bob Rock. But then a lot of other uh, great engineers and producers would come in, and I would get to work with them. Like I, you know, got to assist for Mutt Lang and and for Bob Clearmountain, uh, for Tom Lord Algae, you know. So from all these other great engineers and producers who came through there, so I got to see firsthand. Oh, so that's how you do it. Oh, so that's how you get that sound. Oh, yeah. that's how you mic it. Oh, that's the EQ you're using, and you know, so. Without without all seeing all of that, it's really hard to you know figure it out on your own. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Now, when you started there, was, was this after like some of the big albums that come out of there, like Slippery When Wet, or was it before that? No, yeah, I started after Slippery When Wet. I started on Razor's Edge, so on ECDC's Razor's Edge. Oh, okay. But I was there for like that, and for the David Lee Roth record, uh, Aerosmith. Uh, which, which I did, you know, Motley Crue, uh, who else, you know, Scorpions, which is the record I worked on. Yeah, I've heard of all those guys, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, I started I started in that era. So yeah, right after right after Pump was done, basically, I think ACDC's Raising Dead was next, and then you know, and then I worked on the ACDC Live record, and yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a hell of a way to kick off your career, though, when you can say, well, I started with the Aerosmith album, and, and you went from yeah, there. Yeah, Aerosmith, Aerosmith was after. I was like, an, I had already been an assistant on Little Mountain for, for you know, three years prior to that, and then I just got a lucky break. You know, yeah. the engineer left halfway through the project, and, you know, Bruce and, and, Bruce and Stephen Tyler had just said, you know, hey, Mike's been, you know, we were already four months into the record. We only have another three weeks left on the record, which actually ended up taking another two months. And, you know, I got to be the engineer and was able to pull it off. And then, you know, from that point on, then Bruce, you know, used me on, you know, then after that, I engineered, obviously, uh, uh, Van Halen, and mm. you know, uh, Three Cranberries records, uh, In Excess. So a few uh, more of those lesser known bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, th- yeah, that really helped it. Like I said, it's just a, it was a great it was a great place to, to be, and just the people coming in and out of there all the time. It was, it was, you, you just couldn't learn that anywhere else. It was like the best learning place in the world. Yeah, yeah. And then Little Mountain were really good at wanting you also to you know, the people would want you to go find your own bands at the time and bring them in to produce. So I was always going out to clubs and finding bands when nobody was in and bringing them in to produce, finding young bands and trying to develop them. Mm. And, and they were really ahead of their time back then by letting, letting you know, the assistants do that. So I got a lot of experience producing and engineering my own projects where I just go find these, these, these bands and clubs at, at, at that time. Yeah, can you, t- can you tell me, Mike, what do you think it was about your engineering skills that got you on Bruce Fairburn's radar, that he went, right, I want him to work with me. What, what were my engineering skills? I think, you know, a lot of it was just, like I knew what all the gear did and I was, I was, I was, I was quick and I had a good work ethic. I always had a great work ethic and I just made it a point to, you know, I wanted to learn what everything did. I wanted to learn what every microphone sounded like and I wanted to learn what it sounded like when I ran it through this piece of gear, through that EQ and I would try it. So when I was asked to do things, I was able to do it really quick and, I think that goes like, you know, because that's what it is in a studio. People don't want to be waiting around for somebody to try to create a sound or mm. or figure something out. And I just really had it dialed in. And a lot had to do with Ron Vermeulen, too, who was like an amazing tech who just really showed me. And, and, and you know, I, I had that interest and wanted to learn so bad that he would spend the time with me to just show me the right way. If you do it this way, nobody will ever complain. This is the best signal path. And this is, because he was so technical, even though I come from a more artistic side, I'm not very technical, I'm more artistic. He really showed me the technical side to go with the artistic side. And and I was able to do it quick and, and get the results that they wanted. I think, you know, so I guess in a way that impressed Bruce and I was always able to get the job done and do it on time and, and you know, I learned how I learned how to cover my own mistakes. You know, because everybody does make mistakes, and I had a, a good foolproof method that if mistakes were made, I was always able to fix them or correct them or correct other people's mistakes. Yeah, I think one of the thing one of the things we're finding with the project is um, the likes of John Vertasic and Ron Vermeulen. How important all these guys are. They're not as well known as the likes of Bob Rock and Mike Fraser or Bruce, but they were equally as important to the 
success of the studio? Oh, they were because they had that studio run. It was like there was never any downtime. They were so great. And and that's another thing that people came there for is because you go to other studios, and I know I've worked at other studios, you know, big studios, and you would go in and there'd be maintenance problems and you'd be down for half a day and you'd lose a day. And when everybody's on a, you know, on the clock, it, it runs into the budget and nobody wants to spend extra money sitting around in the studio for half a day. And nobody wants to do that. You come into the studio to work. You don't want to be sitting around waiting for something to be fixed. And with Ron and John, they always had the studio in tip-top shape. Everything just worked. It was, you know, there was never any hums or buzzes in the gear. Or if there was, it was, it was fixed right away. There was never waiting around. Everything was clean. And so you knew when you were going there, you were gonna, you, you were gonna waste. You know, you were going to have, you know, a week of downtime or, you know, through the project, you know, day here, day there that adds up to it. You knew everything was going to work uh, perfectly. Yeah. So can can you tell me a little bit about Bruce Fairburn's methods when it came to pre-production? Because we've spoken to a few people about it and they said that he spent a lot of time getting the songs right before the bands even went into the studio. And you would have engineered some of the biggest records out of there. So you would have had first-hand knowledge of that. Well, he, he was, Bruce was, and I remember even having this discussion with Bruce, like, when it, because the first record Bruce did was uh, with Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation, and the reason they hired Bruce is because when Aerosmith was looking for a producer, of course, every producer wanted to produce Aerosmith, but Bruce Fairbairn was the only producer, and this obviously came from Steven Tyler, too, who told me the story as well, that they actually got a cassette tape from Bruce saying, well, I don't like this song and I don't like this and you should redo this and you're still not ready and you need to go, you know, work this out. And, and it was like Bruce talking on a cassette and they thought, man, this is the only guy that didn't say, yeah, everything's great. Let's go into the studio next week. He made him go back and rewrite and, you know, work out parts and stuff. So I thought that, and he was really like that. Bruce was really all about getting the best song and he really worked with the band on, you know, making sure the, you know, the chord changes were right or the drum parts were correct before they went in. Everybody knew their part because with Bruce, he liked to record everything live off the floor. So he wanted to get the main performance of uh, the drums, bass, and rhythm guitar uh, as a band playing, where, you know, a lot of producers will just get the drums and then, okay, once we get the drums, let's go for the guitars, the bass, you know, and overtime. Mm. But Bruce always liked to get the initial performance, so he made sure the songs were there and the bands were, were, were very rehearsed on the, on the songs. Yeah, that's very interesting you talk about it like that, too, because, you know, I can remember recording in that time period, too, when everybody wanted to do you know, multi-track, you go in, get maybe get the drum for the scratch rhythm, and everybody was going in and doing individual. So, uh, you know, that's really, you know, great to hear that Bruce really keyed in on the, let's get the the basis of it as a band together. And, and that's probably one of the things that makes his albums sound so much better than something else. He did, and even, you know, right up to the last record we did, which was the Yes record, the record he, he, he passed away on, we, we still, right up to 1999, every band we did, like, you know, the Kiss record, the Yes, In Excess, the bass, guitars, and drums were always the band played live. Yes, we do, like, a whole bunch of takes, and yeah, maybe the bass made a little, but we just go, okay, there's a little mistake here, let's just punch in that one bass part here, but everything was always a band performance with all his records that I did. 
And he'd make them, he goes, and he knew, like, and then at the end of the record, you go, man, like, he really knew what the great songs were. Mm. So he definitely had a talent. There's no excuse for, or just, you know, it was no, uh, it was no fluke on his success. He, he definitely knew what a great song was. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just, you just kind of need that kind of person. You do. You got to decide person because as a, as a producer, engineer, and the artist, you get in there and, you know, you start falling in love with your own work. Right. And it just, it happens, you know. And even as a producer, a band hires a producer so they don't do that. But then you need somebody else on top of that, which is the A&R. Which, and he was a great A&R guy. He was very involved, and, you know. He took, he took uh, uh, you know, it, he really, truly believed in what he was doing and loved doing it. Mm. And he was really good at it. Yeah, now Mike, there was, I haven't actually asked any of the other engineers this question, there was two things in the 80s that were synonymous with the way the record sounded. Um, drum samples was one, and the use the use of background vocals uh, was the other one. Were any of them really challenging for you to, to, to engineer? Okay, sorry, say that again now. Right, there's two things in the 80s music that was used a lot. Drum samples was one. And yeah. back, back, there was a lot of background vocals as well. Like if you look at Def Leppard's Hysteria, for example. Like, yeah. How, as as an engineer, how challenging were they to get to, to record? Uh, well, it wasn't that challenging. Drum samples, we actually like it's easy now for drum samples because we're all on the computer. Yeah. So it's, it's easy in Pro Tools. Back then, it was a little bit more challenging because you you have to trigger the samples off of. Uh, you know, if it wasn't programmed drums or you didn't do it off a drum machine, you're easily triggering it off of, you know, an AMS reverb or a PC2290 delay mm. or, you know, something like that. And sometimes the samples, there'd always be a little slam in the samples or missed triggers. So you have to be, you know, you really have to pay attention. You really have to use your ear. Where in today's world, you just, you just visualize it. You just look at it. Right. You don't even have to listen to it. You just go line up the samples kind of you know, writing phase, perfectly phased loss, and, and uh, it, it, it's super easy now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Background, vocal, background vocals, you know, we, we used to get, you know, some background singers to come in who had great voices, so, you know, if you had great background arrangements, it's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back then, the 80s records, they were making rock records, or, you know, which I think Mutt Lang started it, just making rock records that were pop records disguising it with some big drums and guitar. Right, yeah. He, he, really made, he really made pop records. Yeah. And, and um, you know, along the same lines, too, about those, you know, that, those 80s sounds and stuff, and I was talking to uh, another artist uh, two weeks ago, and, you know, we were talking about reverb and delay and chorus and kind of talking about, you know, the kind of the really the bad rap that, reverb and more importantly chorus got during the 80s where it got so overused that a lot of people shied away from using any of that for a few years and just you know maybe did delay did you find the same thing yourself oh yeah definitely it's like not even a few years i'd say like 20 years it's (laughs) just starting to come back now where people go okay let's use a lot of reverb on on vocals or let's use a lot of uh uh, chorus and even chorus still now is like a taboo thing. When you mentioned chorus on a guitar, yeah, or something, people still don't want to use it. But at least the reverb is back now, and people want the, the reverb drum sounds again and reverb on the vocals. But man, for twenty years, nobody wanted to come near it. It was just 
it was just it just it just you know was such a sound and right. just so overused. And now you listen to all the records coming out today; they're using tons of reverb. They're going back to that sound. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of it's actually sounds pretty good. I mean, they've been taking a lot of time and to you know, I know like TC Electronics has done some really nice reverb and stuff. And mostly, what I see for chorus now, if anyone's using it, is they're they've gone back to using some of those analog like Bucket Brigade type choruses as opposed to a lot of the really slick choruses like the rack mouth stuff we were using in the 80s. So it's, yeah, I don't know yeah. if it's slowly creeping back or if it's just going to stay at that level again. But uh, yeah, it's just, I was always interested to ask other engineers who work through that, you know, how you felt coming out of that, you know, as a, uh, just a way overused effect in that area. Yeah, way overused. And it was used so much because back then, you know, it was used more to cover up things. And that's mm. what it's great for, is covering up uh uh, you know, like if something was a little out of tune or you could, you could cover, you know, especially if we didn't have it, you know, auto tune or anything like the technology we have today with Pro Tools, you know, we could, we could fix anything and we could tune anything and we could, you know, so back then where you couldn't and you were on analog tape and, you know, that guitar performance was really good. You didn't have another track to record another take. Right. You just have to go with that because you know what, that was a great performance. Yes, it's a little out of tune. We'll just throw a little chorus on it to fix it. Or you know what, that vocal performance is really amazing. We have no tracks. We're scared to record over it. Uh, it's a little out of tune. We'll throw a little chorus and reverb on it, and you won't notice the pitchiness of it. And that's, that's why it was used so much. It really used to hide the imperfections in the recording. Yeah. Where now, where we could record perfect because of, of the computer... You don't you don't need it. So when you put it on now, it's really it is really just for for an effect. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can remember through the '80s. I still have it. I roll in JC120. When I first got it, I, I love the chorus sound on it. Like, oh, this is freaking oh, fantastic. I, hey, I use it. I use it all the time. I have one too, and I use it on all the records. You know, even like a you know a big record I did not not too long ago, the Three Days Grace record. Mm. The whole all of JC120. You know, with the chorus on the guitar. Yeah. Yeah, and it got to a point, though, that I was like, oh, I just can't, you know, I, I, I never use a distortion on it because it's horrible distortion on that amp. It's like, that's oh, yeah, the, no, the novelty of a turn. It's just a great, clean, yeah. super clean source tone. Yeah, that's the only yeah. thing. That's its only, that's its only use. Yeah, and that's what I loved about it is that anything you put in front of it, you had such a great, clean musical amp. To, to, you know, yeah. when you put stuff through there. So it's like, to me, that was one of those, you know, like everybody should have a JC120 plus something else, you know? Yeah. 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 Mike, Mike, I'm going to pick your brain now about some of the records you worked on as a mountain. <laughs> Rich, okay. Richie's had enough gear talk now. <laughs> He's like, oh God, not, not any more gear talk. All right. The Scorpions Face the Heat record. Um, the first song on it, Alien Nation. Now, I read that the drums are programmed on it, and Herman didn't play the drums on it. Is that true? Yeah, I think one of them, I, you know what, I don't remember, but I know one of them is programmed drums. Okay. And if that, I, I have to go back and listen to the record to know which one was programmed and not, but I know one of them was a programmed drum, and I'm not sure why we did it at the time. Okay. Hmm. Uh, I just I remember reading that recently, and I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be talking to Mike now. Now he actually worked on that. I'll ask him. <laughs> uh, yes, there was one program for sure. That is probably if, if it says that's the one, then it probably is the one. Yeah, I, I've got to say one thing about that record, Mike. It actually sounds amazing for an album that was released in '93. It just 
comes right out the speakers at you. Yeah, it's a great record. Yeah, I, I love that record. So do you, I, I want to just have a, a quick chat with you about the Van Halen record, the Balance record. Um, yeah. Now, would that have been one of Bruce's first records that he did outside of Little Mountain? Yes, it was, because what happened around that time is when Little Mountain closed down. So, and it was before he, Bruce bought the Armory Studios from Jim Ballon. So we were in a, we were in this like no man's land. We were in Little Mountain and all of a sudden this Little Mountain went bankrupt. And we showed up one day and, and uh, I don't, I forget who we were even working on. And they were pulling the SSLs out of the room. Like the leasing company came and the doors were just closed. And that was it. We didn't even know. We showed up at the I forget who we were working on. Wow. And that was it. The door is closed. So uh, it happened to be, at the time, Brian Adams was building a studio in Vancouver, the warehouse, but it still wasn't available. So we went to, we came down to Los Angeles and did the record at Eddie's house. Yes. And I know Sammy Hagar and his book said they went up to Vancouver to record uh, six of the vocal tracks. Uh, can you remember why that was? Yes, we went, we went and we spent a couple of weeks in Vancouver. We actually recorded at Brian Adams' house. He had a studio in his house. Okay. So we used his house for a few weeks and, and did the vocals up at the house. And then we went back to Los Angeles to finish the rest of the record. Okay. Okay. No, I was, I was, just, I was just trying to find out where in Vancouver. I didn't know whether, because I couldn't find out online whether it was at Little Mountain or I thought it might have been at Brian Adams' place. Yeah, it was Brian Adams. It was at, at his house in Los Vancouver. So he had a studio on there, beautiful studio overlooking like the, you know, the Bay of Vancouver. I don't know if you've ever been there. So beautiful views of downtown. It was a great place to work, actually. I yeah. Working. Yeah, we had somebody else who was describing that, too, as well. And I just equated it to the, you know, the great setup that uh, Bob Claremont used to have with uh, all the windows and looking out in the wilderness. And, and you know, when I first time I saw that, I was thinking... That's what I want to do. I want to be a mastering engineer, and I want to have that studio. It's just like incredible setup right. to work in. Brian's was like that too. It was like, you know, on the bottom floor of his house, which was ground level, and looking out, he had this beautiful backyard with all these, you know, and overlooking the ocean inlet downtown Vancouver, and it was just, it was just unbelievable, mm. you know. Yeah, like, it was just so nice to work there. Yeah, especially back there in the days when studios were just completely dark. You know, now you know the studio I work in now has windows, so it's so nice. You know, yeah, it's not that. Yeah, we've had um, yeah. we've had many people tell us that Bright Adam Studio is absolutely amazing. Yeah. What what are, what are your memories of um, recording the Cycle Circus album? Do you have fond memories of doing that? Like, was was that a difficult record to do? Uh, was it difficult? <laughs> there were some difficult parts, like any record, but you know what? It was. It, I was like a huge Kiss fan as a, as a young kid, so for me it was like, wow, I'm working with my like childhood, you know, you know, the band I adored had every poster on my wall and all their albums, so it, it, was, it was a lot of fun working. But we did the whole record in Los Angeles. We did none of it in Vancouver. All of it was done here at a place called One on One, and then we did the rest of. Henson Studios or A&M at the time hmm. Okay, I've just got a, a couple of final questions about Little Mountain I've asked nearly everyone this it, uh, and it might be a record that you actually worked on if there was one record you could pick for, that was recorded at Little Mountain that all the planets aligned and it, it was a superb record could you pick one? Which, 
which record did I like working on the most in Little Mountain? No, not, not even that you worked on it. There's one record that came out, A Little Mountain, that if someone asked you, like, that to find a studio, could you pick one? Ooh, yeah, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got different answers now, Mike. I have three records, I think, to define, to me, that define that studio. Okay. And that would probably be the, you know, Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood record, mm -hmm. which is just an incredible sounding record. You know, yeah. I think still like today, it's still like there's nothing. It, it just has it's an incredible sounding record. I think, you know, I'd go with, you know, even the Get a Grip record that I did or, the, or, or, or with Bruce Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. And then I think probably Bon Jovi, uh, Slippery on that, you know. The, yeah. Those are, those are, like, I just think those records, are, and they're still relevant today. You know, Bon Jovi, Slippery and Wet, still relevant today. I think Motley Crue is still, mm. you know, that record is still relevant today. And, and same with the Aerosmith record. So it would be hard to pick, but I say and those three, you know, yeah. are really what, what, you know, shaped and made Little Mountain what it was. And probably Bon Jovi, Slippery and Wet, because the that's what really... After that record came out and did so well, that's why everybody else started coming, you know? Yeah, true. The final question for me, Mike, is... Um, now, you worked on a lot of records with Bruce. It, from, from the first record to the last, is there one aspect of production that he noticeably got a lot better at? That he got better at? Yeah. Well, I just think Bruce... You know what? I always thought Bruce was just such a talented musician. Mm -hmm. He was... Uh, like, I just never saw any flaws in his production from day one. He just always had a great vision. Mm -hmm. He knew he was a great businessman as well. He knew how to, he was very smart. And he knew how to deal with no matter who the artist was or how big of an ego was. He was always able, it always surprised me how he could just deal with no matter who it was. And he could just, whatever the, whatever the personality was, he could he was just able to work with them. He was amazing at that. And because he was so musical, he could just, everybody looked up to him because he's almost like a music teacher as well because he was classically trained. You know, he had a bachelor's degree in music from the university. You know, he's a trumpet player. Mm -hmm. you know, he could arrange and all that. So so musically, he could communicate on a, on a very high musical level with anybody who came in. So there was nobody that could really say anything to him, you know, it could be like aced on this or that, but as far as, as, as speaking to somebody in a musical in a musical way, he was he was at the highest level and mm. people really respected that. So yeah, I just always saw him as, as just great, no matter who it was. It was it was like he was just always at the top of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one other question we tend to ask almost everybody we've had on and and I think it, it the fact that we always get a different answer from everybody and they're always like really happy to answer it is usually we ask people if they have like one experience of about working at Little Mountain that really stood out to them do you have something like that some some story something that happened when you were working there that has always stayed with you all these years yeah there's a, it was just a, it was a fun time back then you know hmm. like a different time is, is, is uh, it was a fun time to make records yeah yeah, I, I'm curious to hear what other people said. And, you know, it was the beginning of my career, so everything was new and exciting at the time. It couldn't, you know, it was just such a learning experience back then. Mm, yeah. So, so every, everything was new, and it was like, 
all these bands that were coming through there were 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 my favorite bands growing up. Like I couldn't believe that, you know, I grew up listening to A C D C and I grew up listening to Aerosmith and I grew up listening to, to Motley Crue as a kid. And then to actually come in and make you know, as a kid coming from a small town, you know, twenty years old, I couldn't believe that I'm working with these bands all of a sudden, you know. I'm in the room with them making like they're they're wanting my opinion and I thought like, wow, this is this is unbelievable. So I think that would be the that would be the one aspect that I remember most of it about. Yeah. 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 I know that was one of the things when we talked to John Karabi and and we asked him about, you know, his experience there. And one of his things was with Aerosmith too, where like the guys from Crew didn't tell them that Aerosmith was just finishing up the album. So he he's a huge Aerosmith guy. He shows up and he's like a Next thing you know, he's standing in the room with Aerosmith, same thing, like, holy crap, I can't believe this is happening. So uh, people's experiences with Aerosmith have come up a lot in people's, different people's answers. So it's been a theme. Yeah. I, well, well, here's, a, here's a, like a great example of that, as being like a huge Aerosmith fan. I remember one of the first records I bought was Aerosmith, you know, with Dream On on it. That mm-hmm. was like, I remember hearing that as a little kid, I, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and remember, you know, I just wanted to have that and I bought a cassette of it and listened to it. And then I got married really young. I've been with my, you know, with my wife since I was 15. So she's been, she's been there from the beginning. And I had a, uh, a child really young. And I remember I was working on Aerosmith during, after my wife had her baby and my wife coming down to the studio, bringing my, my newborn daughter and Steven Tyler holding my baby. I'm like, oh my God, Steven Tyler's <laughs> holding my daughter this is like incredible like i you know it was like but meanwhile i'm engineering the record so it was for me that was like yeah that i guess that would be the thing i love most of what working there yeah the excitement going there every day yeah yeah it was like how exciting i get to wake up and go there and 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 work with my idol yeah yeah. Mike, did you get a chance to socialize outside the studio much with the bands that you worked with? Actually, you know what, back then, yes, I did. So I remember even doing Aerosmith, they would, every night we'd take a two-hour dinner break and we'd go to like a nice restaurant and the band would you know, take us out for dinner every night. We'd go to a nice restaurant, spend an hour, hour and a half of dinner and come back to the studio and finish working. Nice. Awesome. So yeah, yeah, but there was there was always socializing and, and you know, we spent a long time back then. It was like oh, you know, three to six months to make a record and you were locked in a little room with them for twelve hours a day, every day. So it got to be you know, you got to be really close with them and and and, and good friends and I you know, I had it was always great experience. You know, besides you have to little you know, you have your days, you're up and down days. Mm-hmm in the studio with artistic differences that, you know, that all, like, all the, uh, all the experiences were always amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That right. was awesome. Yeah. And, and of course yeah. we're big Aerosmith heads here because we we're based in Boston. Same with me. I grew up with Aerosmith, you know, buying the vinyl as soon as it came out and all that. I always love the, the Aerosmith stories. So, uh, you know, big, yeah, big you know, they us. were great guys. They, they were like so nice, you know, for a band that was that big, you know, they, they honestly, they had no egos and they were like really fun. Like I said, if it wasn't for like at the time, I think I was 24 years old when we were doing Get a Grip, 23, 24, like as an assistant engineer, honestly, the band and Bruce should have got another very experienced engineer to finish that record. And it was, I it was Steven Tyler that 
told Bruce, Mike could do it, you know. Yeah. He's been here, you know, and saw my work ethic. And he's the one that, you know, made Bruce feel okay that, hey, Mike has finished engineering the rest of this record. Yeah. yeah. So that's, he's really the one that, in a way, gave me my start. Mm. I, I that made my, you know, engineering uh, career take off. Right. Yeah. Anybody else would have felt nervous and got somebody else like, okay, we need to get another big name engineer to come in and finish the record. And right. He didn't. Yeah. No, that's and you know I think that's a a testament to to people being willing to stand up and stick to what they believe in and stuff. And it seems like that yeah. studio seemed to breed that type of behavior and, and ethic. Yeah, and everybody always came in there. Every, there was always a high standard, so you were held to a high standard working there. There was, you know, there was no, you had to be on top of your game. Nobody, nobody, you couldn't, you couldn't slack off a bit. It, mm. it was like almost military school when you were there. Like, they were very, it was, you could not leave the room. You could, you could only, it was just, the way you were brought up there, it was, it was very military. Mm. Yeah. So you were trained from the beginning to be to be really good, and their whole thing was, and it actually came from Ron and them. They said, "Hey, listen, if these people are coming up from LA to Vancouver to work, you have to be great. You have to be better than great, because why should they come up here if you're just mediocre or yeah. just okay?" Right. Yeah. So, so they made sure you knew everything. There couldn't be any, you know. It would be an embarrassment if something wasn't working properly or you were a little slow here or there. So they were, you were just really held to a high standard. And at the beginning, of the, it was very difficult. But, you know, as much as, like I said, I wanted to learn and, and be there. And, and But they really pushed you. to. Be, and if they saw that you were you were there, they would really help you, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Mike, do you keep in touch with any, a lot of the people that work there over the years? Like, do you still keep in contact with them? I don't. Uh, I saw, I was at an airport. Uh, uh, I'm still really close with uh, Bruce's family, so I talk to them when I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with, with his wife and his kids. Uh, I see. I saw Bob a little while ago. We kind of crossed paths here and there sometimes in studio, so I've run into him, you know, over the last five years. It just, you know, he happened to be at the studio I was working at, he was in another room. Uh, Mike Fraser, I haven't seen Mike Fraser for quite a while now. Hmm. Probably the last time I saw him was 2008 or 2009. Wow. So I don't. Randy, I, I did contact with Randy Scott because he was with my same manager. Hmm. And he mixed a few records that I record. I've worked a lot with Howard Benson now. So Randy's mixed a couple of records that I worked on. So just like that, but that's really it, you know. Yeah. Everybody is still, you know, for, you know, coming up through there, still making records today. Yeah. You know, you look at Bob still making records. Randy's still making records. Mike Fraser still making records, you know. So yeah. We're all very blessed with, you know, coming from there, we're all still making records today. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's a tough world out there today to make records, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And, and, and not only are they still making records, but for the most part, they're also the guys that, they're kind of like the, the standards that everybody else is based against as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you look at Randy, you can still, you know, nominated for Grammy Award a couple of years ago for uh, Alice in Chains. Everybody's still making, you know, great records that are current and current today. Right. You know, great. You know, Bob did the Michael and Blay record, you know, so everybody's still making great records. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is this has been really great, Mike, and and part of the reason it's been really really great for us is that 
Um, we've gotten some really nice insight from you about Bruce Fairburn and part of our, you know, doing this project is we, we really wanted to remind people about how important Bruce was as, as part of this whole bigger picture and that, you know, you know, he's not with us anymore, but we don't want people to forget his contribution. And I think talking to you, we've gotten the most insight into Bruce, which has been really good to have. Yeah. And well, you know, Bruce gave everybody a star because Bob Rock was Bruce Fairburn's engineer. Hmm. You know, Bruce is the one producing Lover Boy and and Prism and, and I don't know if Bob was on that, but I know Lover Boy. Bob Rock was the engineer. Mm-hmm. Bob Rock started at a little mountain as a tape off, you know, making dubs in the tape room and started engineering for Bruce till he started producing. And Mike Fraser was the assistant engineer. So everybody, all of us came up to Bruce Ferber. Yeah. You know, yeah. Bruce was the guy, Bruce was the guy that the reason, you know, Little Mouse started is because Bruce produced Loverboy and John Bon Jovi loved the Loverboy record and came to Bruce Ferber. Right. So Bruce is really the guy that brought all those big acts. He started it all. Yeah. And, you know, we, we all learned so much on how to make a musical record from Bruce. That's what he knew how to do. Bruce wasn't technical, but he was so musical and he knew how to make a musical record. You know, he didn't care if something was like, if that was a wrong note or that was a distortion, you know, he would go, no, that feels good. That, you know, I don't care. Hey, that's cool. Or, you know, that's a little out of time, but it, it, that's really good. He knew what a, a good mistake was. Well, other people wouldn't know what a good mistake was. So they just go, oh, it's a mistake. So we need to fix that. Mm. Where Bruce would overlook it and go, you know what? That mistake kind of works in this song. Mm-hmm. And he had that. And even still today, I don't have that, that, that gift or talent to do that. It's, there's a mistake. I go, okay, that's a mistake. It has to be fixed. Yeah. yeah. Bruce would know when to leave it. And now you listen to him. You, go, you know what? He was right. That's what makes it cool. That's what gives that record, like you said, his record's that live feeling. But he knew how to capture that. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not right. easy to set up a live band and, and, and keep all the instruments off the floor. That's, that's right. That's, yeah. that's a talent that you need to know how it's on and, and, and see the big picture before or see the big picture before you're doing it. And he had that vision. Yeah, he, he always had that vision. He, he produced so many records that shaped my music listening experience when I was growing up. Even, not even the big ones, like Dan Reed Network. I love those records he did with, with them. Yeah. And, and he, he just worked with so many different bands and all the records were just amazing. You know, the songs yeah. were just so good. That's what he was. He was a great craftsman and song. Yeah, those damn, that first Dan Reed network was great. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Brilliant album. Brilliant, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Mike, this has been an, an absolute blast. Um, you're, you're, you are the last guy in the project. It's very, very extensive. And I will send you all the links to all the interviews you've done so far. And uh, hopefully it'll bring back some uh, happy memories for you. Yeah, it's great. Great talking to you guys. I love talking about these old, old stories because, you know, I haven't thought about it in years. And to bring it up, you know, if somebody actually cares, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome, I think. You oh, know? great. Because, you know, you think it was, a great, it was a great time for me at the time, but, you know, you think, oh, nobody really cares nowadays. But if there is actually somebody that cares, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And obviously we'd love to have you come back on sometime and then, pick your brain about some other albums and stories and stuff. Um, it's definitely been a blast talking to you. 
I'd love to just, yeah, yeah, just, you know, let me know. And I'd love to read the link when it comes out or whatever, you know, send me the link. I'd love to check it out. Yeah, I'll send you the links for the episodes tomorrow that we've already run. Okay, great. Great talking to you guys. Yeah, all right, all right Mike. Take care. Thanks again for uh, taking okay. so much time with us tonight. We appreciate it. Okay, no problem. Talk to you later. All right, okay, bye. bye. All right, there we go. A wrap for another episode in our Little Mountain Sound series. A long one. Lots of editing for you. Yeah, <laughs> is what it is. Uh, a lot of good stuff, and uh, you know, you listen back to it too because, you know, you know, when we're talking to people, a lot of times too, you're you're thinking about what else you're going to ask them, and so sometimes you're not a hundred percent, you know, listening to every word that that somebody says. Uh, so it's great when you're going back and and you just you can hear, you know, everything um, again, and just it's it's great to get back and rethink about it and all that. So. In that case, some you know that sense. Sometimes I don't mind some of the editing. Yeah, but. Um, yeah. Just it's been a blast. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward. You know, I haven't heard some of the interviews in a long time. <laughs> so I, I, you know, when you send them to me, I'm like, oh yeah, forgot I asked him about that. Or, but um, yeah, next one up is uh, a musician, right? And we have three, and we have to decide who we're going to run next. Yep. Um, so. We'll talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it won't be as long as this uh, one. <laughs> no, uh, this is probably the longest episode in, in all of them. But yeah, uh, it's it's the only one you're going to get two people on. Mm-hmm. I think all the rest of them are, are single episode. Yeah, yeah, uh, single episodes, which I think you know is 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 great. But this one was a long one. But yep. there's some great stories. Hopefully, you've enjoyed both interviews. Right, and uh, there's a lot more to come. Absolutely. So uh, so that's a wrap for this week. Uh, next week back to one of our normal shows and definitely been doing a ton of interviews and uh, so uh, we'll, we'll get can... we'll get some discussion and <laughs> I've had a lot of good feedback about uh, the Iron Maiden episode oh good people, people good. want more, more discussion awesome so uh, yeah I'm back now so yeah we'll be back doing some discussions okay great so uh, as you know as I always say keep up with us focus on metal.net focus on metal.blogspot.com twitter.com slash focus on metal and of course you can uh, reach out and talk to Richie on Facebook uh, he's been ably covering all of our uh, Facebook's activities for focus on metal so uh, causing mischief there we go that's alright <laughs> so uh, with that Scott and Richie saying have yourselves a good metal week and until we talk to you again next week remember focus on metal everything else is insane Go home.